Hi, welcome to Around Town, where we seek to discover insights into places, events, topics, and issues that you want to know about in our great city. I'm your host, Nick Berkfeld, with producer Chuck Luck. Today, we'll be talking with Ryan Hyatt, the owner and founder of TheRaiderLand.com. Thanks so much for coming on today. Good to be here. Always nice to be in a nice padded room with air conditioning, so I think we're off to a tremendous start. It's going to be a good day. What's your connection to West Texas? Came by it honestly. Born in Amarillo, dad coach, mom a teacher. He was coaching at Tascosa, moved to Canyon. Great place to be a kid, by the way. Canyon, Texas, 1970s, idyllic. Had a lot of fun. Moved here in 79. Went to Coronado. They gave me a degree. Went to Tech. Jerry Hudson said, we're going to give you this degree, but you can't tell anyone where you got it for 10 years. And after 10 years, if you have done anything, you can say you got it from Tech. Otherwise, you went to South Plains. I want to ask you what it was like to be a coach's kid. I didn't know any different. You know, I wasn't an engineer's kid or a fireman's kid, so I enjoyed it. Obviously built in a love of sports that would carry on through my life. I didn't think about it at the time, but I was I was blessed to be able to play for my dad. Not a lot of people get a chance to do that, and that's a weird relationship. You catch a lot of heat as the coach's kid. He would yell at me more, and I didn't realize it, that he could yell at me things that he couldn't say to the other players. And it took me till I got a little older and years of therapy, thanks, Dad, to accept that. It gave me a background in sports that I try to utilize today that helps me empathize with coaches, sympathize with players a little bit, just have a little bit of a working knowledge of kind of how the whole deal works. What are some of your earliest memories around sports? Everything revolved around sports. First thing I went to was one of my dad's games, you know, as a kid and running around and going on track meet trips or being in practice after school. And we weren't doing that. We were playing sports. Back in the day, for our younger listeners today, you can Google this, and they actually had these things called vacant lots where kids could roam free without organization and parental supervision and play anything they wanted to. That's what we did, and it was glorious. What kinds of games would you play on the vacant lots? Hybrid games of baseball and football. Dirt Clod Wars, you know, were really good. We built our own World War I trench system one time down in one area. It's nice. We had latrine and everything. It was really good. You could just create. It wasn't structured. I think we were better off for it. Is there a story in your childhood that exemplifies growing up in a small town, those experiences? So we'll go back to Canyon. We were living in an area called Hunsley Hills, and it was still fairly new back then. We could go trick-or-treating all over Hunsley Hills, me and my friends. I don't remember if there was parents around. We didn't know about it. Then we could go into town and do hours and hours and hours, and you were safe. You weren't afraid. You weren't worried about getting razor blades in an apple or something. Now, there was one woman who some kids disappeared one year, but we don't talk about that a lot. I think back on that experience that being able to be in a smallish town, Canyon, about 10,000 at the time, we got to do that. We got to have that experience. And even Lubbock in the 80s was a different city than it is now. You had friends at every high school. One of the great things that I got to do, I got to go to junior high at J.T. Hutchinson. And we splintered off to Monterey, to Lubbock High. I went to Coronado. We had friends at Dunbar and Estacada. It was great. We've lost a little bit of that. So, yeah, I think those kind of exemplify a little bit of my background. What were some of your first impressions of the city of Lubbock? My grandparents lived here, so I'd grown up spending time in Lubbock. And when I found out we were moving here, I was like, great, this is awesome, because pretty much every time I came to Lubbock, it was a holiday or Christmas. I'm getting stuff. I spent enough time in Amarillo and Canyon to realize how different Amarillo and Lubbock are. Amarillo is consumed with hatred for Lubbock. Lubbock doesn't care that Amarillo exists. Amarillo is still mad that Tech went here. Amarillo is just mad. And Lubbock's like, oh yeah, Amarillo, that's where it's frozen waste for nine months out of the year. Yeah, Amarillo. When you went to Tech, 
What was it like to be on campus? I feel like timing in life has been really fortunate for me. Tech was not a 40,000 student campus. It was smaller. You knew more people, I think, around campus than maybe you do today that you weren't in just a total enclave. And granted, I was in the media and in mass communications. To me, it was a natural progression going from Coronado. It seemed very normal, very natural. I didn't feel like I went off to college and I don't feel like I missed anything by not going a thousand miles away. At what point did your career path start to solidify for you? Probably my junior year at Texas Tech is when I really realized this is what I'm going to do. I'd been really fortunate to get involved in student media at KTXT on the radio side. I was working professionally. I was doing Lady Raider games by then full time and baseball and different stuff and working for Woody Van Dyke and doing a lot of things early on that a lot of people just didn't get the opportunity to do. Again, I got to do it because I was home. I was available. And it was probably my junior year that I realized, one, I might be okay at this. I really like it. People may even pay me to do it. And I found out they do, but not much. It's like a drug. They get you hooked on it. And then they say, oh, and this is all you're going to get. I'll do it again. Okay. Just give me gas money. I'll do it again. I promise. And I thought, I better try to get as good at this as I can. And I actually did try to work on my craft, contrary to popular belief. The first game that you announced, what was going through your head at the time? What were you feeling? I was dizzy. (laughs) I'd done some color analysts for some high school stuff, but the first Texas Tech broadcast I did was in the spring of 89, baseball game with a guy named Brian Gordon, who went on to be just a huge higher-up technical guy at ABC. Monday night football, golf, you name it, Olympics. Brian has executive produced a lot of that stuff. Going to do color, and he's going to do play-by-play with this Tech baseball game. And then all of a sudden, about the third inning, he gets up during the break. He says, I'm going to go get some nachos, and now I'm it. I'm on. I have no idea what transpired that inning and a half that I did. But when it was over, I was like, I really want to do this again. This is a lot of fun. Same thing, first Lady Raider game. I was working a game with a guy, Danny Vaughn. Well, it wasn't the first one, but early on. And all of a sudden, we start having technical problems with the Marty, a little wireless deal. Imagine that. Problems with the Marty. Danny looks at me and goes, go. Now I'm doing play-by-play. I know the tech players are playing A&M. I'm just making up names. Betty inside. That's Janice. Boy, she's having a good game. Emily on the wing. And again, I had no idea what happened, but when it was over, I was like, I want to keep doing this. This is fun. How difficult was it after university to continue to pursue these types of opportunities? When I graduated tech, I'd already had about three years or so underneath me, including commercial broadcasts. Was able to slide into some of that, got some print stuff going and started a regional basketball magazine in that time frame. But I had the tech stuff going. About a year later, ended up doing what was called the Williamson Hyatt Show, which is a daily sports show on KFYO that ran for about 19 years or so. And Again, really fortunate that I woke up one day, guys my age were sending out applications and trying to get to markets that I was already in. I was probably about 30 when I realized people were trying to get my job. They wanted to come to Lubbock to get a Big 12 job, to get a Southwest. I'm like, I already got one. Don't screw this up. Some days better than others. How do you stay passionate about sports? It's different all the time, and it's the same all the time. I can do a recap of a Tech football game, and I can pull out notes and go, yeah, I did this in 2017, 2012. The same script, different name, but still something new is happening. The personalities make it passionate. And it's unscripted drama. It's the greatest form of playwright, musical, drama, book. You have no idea because the script hasn't been written when it starts. We all find out together how the show ends. Some days it feels like we really know how this show's going to end. Would you say that you're in love with sports? No. No, I love my wife. I love my kid. I love my dogs. I like my cats. I love music. I'm not in love with sports. I love doing what I do, but I don't know that I'm in love with sports. 
I love a lot of the aspects about sports. I love the people that are involved with sports. I don't know that I always love sports. At a certain point, it does become a job. No matter what you love, if you monetize it at a certain point, you're doing a job. And there are still days I'll wake up and go, this is what I do to make a living. I have to do this. What are the ways that you find motivation on those days? I used to be a lot of whiskey and Shiner Bach. And now it's just trying to create something good. At a certain point in your life, you go, man, have I really contributed anything? And I know that sounds real big picture type stuff, but at a certain point, you just go, maybe I can do something today that somebody will like. Maybe I'll make them laugh. Maybe I'll make them think. We'll have a good conversation that somebody's getting off work and they go, okay, let's turn this on and this will be better than what I was dealing with. If I can do that, I feel like I'd kind of contributed to the greater good, as infinitesimally small as that is. And we'll be right back with Ryan to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. Welcome back to Around Town. We're speaking with Ryan Hyatt, the owner and founder of TheRaiderLand.com. Who are some of the people that helped to shape your style, your career within sportscasting? So many, too many. Within sportscasting, Jack Dell, obviously, grew up listening to him, transistor radio, 1970s. He would be calling a basketball game. I'd be in my room with a little toy basketball, reenacting it as it went on. One day I'm sitting in a press conference. Hey, there's Jack Dale. There's Jack Dale. Not there's so-and-so football player. There's Jack Dale. Just getting to meet him and know him and everything. And then just also realizing the day that I realized I can't call a game the way he calls it. I better find something else. Stole a lot from guys like Brad Sham. Very good guy to steal from because apparently he stole from others. Vern Lundquist, another great voice of the 70s and 80s. And just kind of cobbled together different things. But Jack Dale, A1A. And I learned a lot more from him about not just broadcasting, but just how to be a professional that I've never lived up to, that I don't think anybody around here really has lived up to with Jack Dale. Bottom line, I don't have the career I have without Jack Dale and Marsha Sharp and probably Larry Hayes, too. What was so unique about Jack's style? Descriptive. As you listened in a basketball game, you know, who had the ball or where they were within inches of somewhere on the court. Jenny's top of the key, outside, right side, inside, outside, you know, just that he could locate that ball so quickly that in your mind, you knew where it was. If you sat next to him during a game, you realized how, what we call on ball he was. There wasn't a lag. There wasn't like this delay. It was like TV being right there, but his style, pure radio and unduplicatable. For many years, you would be a consistent voice on Lady Raiders basketball. How did that start? Again, I was the only one at home in the dorms one night when they needed somebody to fill in uh, there at the campus station that had the games, and I started doing it and hanging around. And we were fortunate at the time. Dr. Hudson was really aggressive, and Dr. Kinghorn with 88.1 about getting the students a chance to broadcast women's basketball, baseball, volleyball, basically anything but football, men's basketball we were allowed to do. I just kept showing up and doing more and more games. It was a time when they were getting more popular in 1990. On the campus station, we did all the home games, and KFYO carried all the road games in Southwest Conference, and Jack would do that as a doubleheader. In 1991, either that or 91-92, KJAC bought the rights for a full season, and it was the first year the Lady Raiders had every game broadcast on one station. I got to do the play-by-play for that first full year in 91-92, and we just kept going. You had mentioned color versus play-by-play. Could you talk a little bit about that? Play-by-play is just the lead voice descriptor, what's going on. The analyst comes back in and kind of gives you the why. 
the play-by-play guy will draw a skeleton drawing for you. The good color guys come in and color in between the lines and fill in with the red and the blue and the green, what happened and why it happened. I did color with Jack a few times. Here's how descriptive he was. So in a basketball game, hey, you know, you've got as much time as you need after the ball goes through the basket from the time it goes through until they inbounds the ball. You can get in anything you want to get in. Okay, Jack. (laughs) Nice play. Good pass. (laughs) Would you say that basketball is the sport you enjoy giving commentary, doing play-by-play the most? Yeah, I don't know. I love doing baseball. Baseball is the perfect sport for radio. I love broadcasting baseball more. Basketball was the worst sport I ever played. Probably the sport I knew the least amount at a high level that I ended up doing more and more years of, and probably more people knew me from doing basketball than other sports. The one I had to work the hardest at to do. When watching different sports, how has that changed for you over time? Have you become more observant of these different games? My wife hates watching a game with me, so I don't watch a game. Even my own son's game, I'm looking at it probably from a different angle than sometimes, and that I view it that way. And then I don't cheer. Years and years of being in a press box, press row, whatever, I literally don't know how to cheer. Great stuff can be happening. I'm just going, yeah, that is really nice. Look at that 99-yard run right there. Boy, that was really good. Good job. I don't know what to do. Wife's screaming her head off. You know, I'm like, yeah, that was good. She will sit by me, though, at the games. You were doing broadcast as the Lady Raiders were rising into prominence and ultimately made their championship run. What was that experience like to see a team start to come into their own and ultimately reach that? I started working the games my freshman year, and that was the group that would be the team that would win the first Southwest Conference championship for Marsha Sharp in 91-92. So I got to watch them grow from freshmen to seniors. Jennifer Buck, Teresa McMillan, some really good players in that. Tammy Wilson would join that as a JUCO. That first year, they don't make the NCAA tournament, 88-89. In 90, they play the dog out of Texas in the Southwest Conference tournament, lose by three, and they get in and they go on the road to Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois. They lose in the first round, but they're back in the tournament. And this is when Krista Kirkland has arrived, and she's a young player. And next year, you get Stephanie Scott in as a freshman. Noel Johnson would come in in 91, 92. And you see this build. And it was about midway through the 90-91 team, which would be the first team to beat Texas in the history of ever, without Cheryl Swoop. She's not on campus yet. They win that game in the Southwest Conference Tournament. And that's when you knew things were starting to get special. The next year, Swoops comes in. You beat Texas again in Austin for the first time. You sweep them. This Swoops kid is pretty good. It took them almost a half a year to a year to learn how to play with her. They weren't fast enough. They all had to elevate their game to her level, and they did, and they adjusted. 92-93 season just from the get-go. The early loss at Stanford when Stanford drops the national championship banner on them in the first game of the year after they'd won it the previous year, and they're having to stand there and watch that. Marsha Sharp wanted them to see that, and it fueled it. And then they would drop another game at Utah on a weird trip, wouldn't lose again until a block charge call that we still dispute to this day against Texas in Lubbock. And then they wouldn't lose again until the next year and win the top. But you saw it building, but it was really that year before. And getting the right parts and pieces together and that team elevating, Swoops being able to share as a player, those players being able to share with her, a unique combination that's hard to find. When thinking about that team and its place in women's basketball, how would you compare it to the game today? It was the first sellout of the Final Four at the Omni in Atlanta, first pre-sellout. Swoops Mania would help create a shoe in a league in the WNBA a few years later that it moved the bar athletically. It was an incredibly athletic team. 
if you got Cheryl Swoops and Krista Gerlich and stuff, you could play today. And it raised that conscience that all of a sudden that drove a TV meteorites deal with ESPN. And this is pre-REM at, at UConn. Summit obviously had already been winning at Tennessee. That team resonated across the country. You know, it was a great story. And it set in motion. They were their own worst enemies. Now all of a sudden everybody wanted to play basketball. It got harder and harder. It's been commented on about your memory and recall of sport and the games that you announce. How did that come about? I don't know. I could always remember stuff that didn't matter. You know, I could remember the 1984 Cubs lineup, but I couldn't tell you what the algebraic formula was for math that day. I, you know, I could remember things like that. My wife, she's like, how can you remember these things? And I tell you to go get three things at the store and you get two of the three. I'm like, that's pretty good. They put you in the Hall of Fame if you do that for a batting average. I associate dates, events, people that way. Whatever it is, that way I can do it. Can't do it with a lot of other things. And certainly things that make you money, I can't do it. How do you think about your relationship to other sports broadcasters or people involved in sports media out here in Lubbock? I'm thinking about Don Williams, for example. Yeah, me and Don go back a long ways, obviously with the old Williams and I at show and knew him before then. And then if you hang around long enough, you become venerable. And now I'm just that old guy that all the young people at the TV stations and all the young people in the media are like, oh, wow, he was around when Krista Gerlich was a player. Hold on, you covered Spike Dykes? Yeah. You had a media pass in the 80s? Yeah. The only person who's had a media credential longer than me is Don and then John Harris, who does radio. That's it. You hang around long enough, you get venerable, people think you know something. That's a lie. And we'll be right back with Ryan to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. Welcome back to Around Town. We're speaking with Ryan Hyatt, the owner and founder of TheRaiderLand.com. I want to ask about your relationship with Don Williams. How did the two of you pair up together to have this 19-year run that you did? Pretty amazing the way it came together. You know, he was working at the AJ. I was working in radio, different stuff, and met him several times. To get to that story, I got to tell this story. So the reason we're putting together a show in 1994 is because Steve Dale got himself fired at KFYO. Jack Daly's dad got mad and quit. So all of a sudden, they've got to have a new show. They hire me as the sports director because why not hire a 23-year-old guy to replace Jack Dale in a contentious environment and put me on with Johnny May and Max Mott, Jim Stewart. I'm taking a look at the tailcut market, and here's Ryan Hunt. Don't know who he is. So we're sitting there trying to come up with a replacement. We're in the office. It's me. It's Johnny May's in there. I think Max is in there. And Danny Fletcher is the general manager at the time, and he'd come in from out of market. He'd only been around a while, and he'd been reading the paper, and he'd been reading Don's column. He said, you know, a lot of markets, they have the newspaper guy on with the radio guy. What about this Don Williams guy? I'm like, Don? I've known Don like four or five years at this point. We've had some long conversations of 20 to 30 seconds. Don doesn't talk. I'm like, Don? Everybody else is like, Don doesn't talk. Well, I want to, you know, let's do it. We're going to make this happen. We go to lunch at 50th Street Caboose. Don's there. Don says nothing for an hour. We're like, oh, this is not going to work. Get back to the station. It was Danny Fletcher. He's our guy. All right, here we go. So we're off and running. The first summer we're on, Don doesn't look up maybe three times for three months. He nods a lot on the air during that time. And then he slowly gets going. And 20 years later, we couldn't shut him up. And it worked. It worked. It was amazing. 
What is it that makes a good dynamic between color and play-by-play? Two different personalities. And I think it's critical that you don't spend every waking hour together so that stuff is fresh. We didn't sit there the night before and go, I'm going to say this, you're going to say this, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Nope. And then we didn't really hang around together a whole lot. We figured two to three hours a day was enough. So when we got together every day at five o'clock, it was fresh. It was good conversation. And that we could have conversation without it being personal, that I could disagree with him. He could disagree with me. We could have just the most amazing fights. I think it's critical that you maintain that respect and a little bit of relationship distance. I want to ask you about the Raiderland. How did that brand come about? And at what point in time did you decide that you wanted to do something on your own? Yeah, I'd taken the radio show private in 2004. So the last eight years or so of the show, I owned it as a subsidiary and and worked with the station. We were coming back from the College World Series in the summer of 2016. Me and David Collier came at 28. And I said, what if we built our own radio station and TV station? He's like, you're still drunk. No, no, I'm fully sober. I said, we have the technology now to do a newspaper, to do a radio station, to do a TV station, all of it online. I said, well, let's do something. And he's like, I don't have anything to do with it. I've got a real job. So that's how the Raiderland.com started. I still do radio every day. I just don't do it on a radio station. It's great. The Raiderland attracts a very significant amount of Texas Tech alumni traffic. How did you build up a platform that reached that stage? I'd been drugged unwillingly into the world of social media through the show in the 2000s by all my great young producers who said, oh, you've got to be on this space. I said, what space? My space. No, what about my space? No, your space. And then the Twitter thing. You got to do on the Facebook. Through the years, I'd been just building up that brand that it was easy to transfer that into what we call the Raiderland now. The distribution in the platform that people consume media now, that's how they want to consume media. As I said, you're still doing the same stuff. It's just you've got to deliver it to people the way they want it delivered, on demand, that they don't want to have to say, I've got to be by a radio at five to seven every day. I can't do that. Okay, fine. You can come watch the replay later on. Once I realized that I could still do all the stuff I loved, but distribute it in a manner people wanted to access it, then it was easy to grab onto that. The college athletic landscape has also changed a lot in your time. I want to ask you specifically about NIL and transfer portals. What are they and how have they started to impact the game? It's huge. It's been a long time coming and it's great for Texas Tech. Specifically, if you're a Tech fan, you love NIL because now you can compete straight up. And that's great. And, you know, Tech folks have money. Wombles got money. Cody Campbell's got money. Tech fans aren't afraid to spend it. And we've seen that. The transfer portal is good. Coaches could leave on a whim. Players were stuck. I do think we need to limit it a little bit, maybe a second transfer, but whatever. But again, it benefits Texas Tech, that they can go out and they can get these players. And it allows for, a, I think, a leveling of the playing field for schools like Texas Tech. And that going forward, Tech's got the infrastructure in place. The facilities are top-notch. They're as good as anything they need to be. They're going to be in a fine conference going forward. And then when conferences go away, they'll still be among the top 60 football playing teams and certainly in basketball. Everything's in place. Now you just got to start winning some games. Joey McGuire's got to win games. Krista Gerlich's got to win games. Graham McCaslin got to win games. Tim Tadlock got to keep winning games. But everything's there for Texas Tech to be set up over the next five to 10 years to remain a major player in college athletics and for them to be successful doing it. It's empirically proven the old way benefited Alabama, Ohio State, the University of Texas did benefit Tech. This one might. At least you got a chance. That's the way I see it. In your mind, for tech to really find a different gear, embracing NIL, embracing the changes with the transfer portal are things that we should be good at. 100%. I have no idea what Joey McGuire thinks personally of NIL, but I know he's embraced it publicly 
and that the players go, this is a coach who's got my back on this. He's going to try to help me. Some guys like Dabo, Sweeney, Lane, Kiffin, Gundy up at Oklahoma State, they've been publicly against it. It's hurting them. And that's fine. Be against it. But this is the landscape. If you want to coach in college football right now, this is the deal. If you don't like it, you can go coach at J.T. Hutchinson Junior High. You had mentioned earlier a scenario where there wouldn't be any conferences. There's been a lot of changes happening within that. Talk a bit about conference realignment and where things are today. Uh, Five to 10 years from now, college football will be played much like the NFL. You won't have conferences. You'll have divisions. It'll be based geographically. It'll funnel to a 32-team playoff probably. Basketball at the highest level will break off in a similar fashion. The leagues will be in partnership with the TV networks. And then you'll see below that, the remnants of the old conferences. Tech tennis doesn't have to play the same people that tech football plays. They don't have to go to West Virginia. They don't need to go to Utah. They can play regionally. You can do the same thing in baseball, and I think it'll make much more sense. And that's where we're going to go. That's what's going to happen. What things do you see changing that would lead to this happening? Money. The university presidents figured out how much money they're missing out on. They figured out how much money is to be had. The distribution will change. Amazon will bring you more games. Yahoo will stream games. The traditional media partners of ESPN and ABC and stuff like that, that's going to morph. The money's still going to be there because it's one of the last few things that is easy content to produce, and it's constantly fresh. For the listener out there interested in pursuing a career in sports media, what advice do you have for them? Go to medical school. Don't. Just don't do it. But if you're dumb enough to get involved in it, get involved early, work like a dog for nothing, do as many internships and hang around and learn. There's no game that's too small because to the people involved in it, it's everything to them. But I used to think that small school, whatever, no. Or that little Little League game, I'm not going to talk. No, it's everything to them. So give them everything you've got because it's important to them and then it'll be important to the audience too. But just if you want to get involved in it, you've got to give of yourself at a level and do things that nobody else is going to do. Take assignments that nobody else is going to take. For those that want to know more about the Raiderland, how can they? If you want to find out more about what we do on a daily basis, go to theraiderland.com. That's our website. We do daily live broadcast around 630. Follow us on Twitter at Ryan Hyatt Media. Got a Facebook page, Ryan Hyatt's Raiderland YouTube channel. And we're very big in Bangladesh right now. So if you're listening in Bangladesh, voila, ha, yeah. Brian, that's all the time that we have today. Thanks so much for coming on. It was a blast. It was a lot of fun. Love what you've done with the place. I hope you have me back sometime with hors d'oeuvres. Thanks for listening to Around Town. I'm your host, Nick Burkfeld. This show was produced by Chuck Buck. Our guest today was Ryan Hyatt, the owner and founder of TheRaiderLand.com. Join us next Friday morning at 9 a.m. on 89.1. For more information on Around Town or to listen to previous episodes, visit ttupublicmedia.org.